Hello, and welcome back to a special mini-episode of In These Uncertain Times, a podcast about creating and connecting in the midst of uncertainty. I'm your host, Derek Horn. Trying out something different today. I've been wanting to see if there's space under the umbrella of this podcast to share some mini-episodes, offering my perspectives on varying topics relating to uncertainty and the ways we look to define it. You might be thinking, Derek, I thought this was a podcast about creating and connecting, not politics. And while I don't intend on going full pod save America, if there's anything I've personally learned the past five years or so is that just about everything is political. For myself and many of my guests, existing as ourselves in this world is a political decision. And considering how this podcast was created as a response to the COVID-19 crisis that exploded because of political failure... I think it's fair game to talk about how the political situation impacts uncertainty as I've defined it. So right now we're going through what's arguably one of the biggest collective moments of uncertainty we've had in our lifetimes, as we wait for the results of last night's election. While it seems as though Joe Biden may pull through in key states and become our next president, the final vote count is far from finished. Despite weeks and months of warnings from experts saying that the mail-in votes and the ways that different states count them may cause a delay in the final results, as well as kind of a shifting of uh, the perceived winner throughout the course of that count, I watched the news last night in horror, (laughs) feeling echoes of 2016 as the race seemed like it was getting too close for comfort. And while we wait for clarification on what those final results may be, there are some things that have emerged as crystal clear for me. Before I get started, I want to note that these opinions are mine and mine alone and are not above criticism, so please reach out to me via Instagram at dj.horn or email me at derekjhorn at gmail.com if you want to offer some other perspectives. So first and foremost, something that's very clear to me is that Trumpism is not dead. Frankly, I'm disgusted that it's this close, given the deadly pandemic, the racist appeals, the administration's general incompetence over the past four years, and also just this spirit of straight-up pettiness and meanness that have cultivated politics the past five years. This really should have been a landslide. I'm eager to mend the vast divide in our nation, but... I'm not ready to give passes to the forces that have rotted our political discourse. People of color and those most threatened during the Trump era shouldn't be responsible for leading this conversation, and their most immediate needs should be met first and foremost in their individual communities. But I wanted to offer an approach to reconciling the rot within our system in three ways. First and foremost, I want to talk about the individual voters, specifically the white vote. Brie Newsom Bass on Twitter wrote earlier today that the, quote, close divide in the USA only exists among white people. Every other racial demographic is clear in majority oppression to Trump, but white people are 70% of the U.S. population. Again, there's this constant effort to frame the narrative in ways that avoid the examination of white identity politics. So, back in 2016, 62% of white men and 53% of white women infamously voted for Trump. According to the New York Times exit polls from this cycle based on gender and racial-slash-ethnic heritage, it seems as though the number of white men that voted for Trump has gone to 58%, but the number of white women that voted for him is astonishingly risen to 55%. 
again, these are just exit polls and not necessarily final, but I do think they start to paint a picture of the Trump electorate. When faced with change, history shows us that people will cling to their racial identity, specifically their whiteness, even if it threatens their own material or bodily well-being. For more on this, I highly recommend reading a piece on Salon by Chauncey de Vega called However the Election Ends, White Supremacy Has Already Won. We need to find a new vocabulary to speak about white supremacy with people that resonates with them, because clearly whatever we've been doing isn't working. Much like a cult, I think it's important to separate voters from their run leader. I discussed this with Cindy last week in our interview episode, and I think it's worth reiterating here. I know most of us can't think about doing this right now, but if we can't win back even the softest of Trump voters, any hope for a reunion of our society is essentially doomed. That being said, while not all people who voted for Trumps are raging bigots or racist, they decided that voting for one isn't a deal breaker. There needs to be a reckoning with that fact, that they threw the most vulnerable among us under the bus in a protection of their guns, their religious identities, their economic anxiety, their whiteness, whatever it may be. You may have seen the meme of Bob and Sally. It's a picture of two stick figures holding hands, and it says, This is Bob. He votes Republican. This is Bob's friend Sally. Sally votes Democratic. Bob and Sally are still friends because Bob and Sally are both adults. Be like Bob and Sally. I think that this type of meme really overly simplifies voting to a mere disagreement and does not hold Bob, who voted Republican in this case, accountable for the ways in which his choice is detrimental to vulnerable populations. Once again, this should not be on the shoulders of people of color or the most targeted who have been fighting for centuries. Those of us who do have the privilege of social capital should wield it in ways that can sway those who are able to be convinced. The second part of this is the media. I won't dwell on this for too long, as it could be worth a whole episode itself, but it is worth touching on. Personal technology and social media have democratized consuming and sharing information like nothing before in human history. However, they have led to the spread of disinformation in an increasingly polarized media bubbles that allows us to pick and choose the news and perspectives that suit our worldview. This essentially creates separate planes of reality that makes agreeing on a basic set of facts increasingly difficult, and therefore dooming political discourse before it even starts. I don't have a solution for this problem, but wanted to call it out as a factor at play here. And then lastly, we arrive at our elected leadership. So even the most quote-unquote reasonable Republican leadership has seemingly fully embraced Trumpism and all of its dog-whistle politics in bluster. Just the other night at a rally in Florida, Senator Marco Rubio, who was a harsh critic of Trump during 2016, was awkwardly giving this stump speech that was very Trumpy, and he went so far as to praise the caravan of Trump supporters that surrounded a Biden campaign bus and nearly drove it off a highway. If these so-called serious Republican leaders want to be taken seriously, they need to start rebuking the most toxic tendencies that their party has widely embraced. And it, it can't be understated how badly Democratic leadership as a whole has failed us in standing up to Trump. They could have gone so much further in wielding their power to hold Trump and his cronies accountable during impeachment process and beyond. Leaders like House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi would often cower from going too hard in rebuking Trump in favor of letting voters decide. Despite committing to using every arrow in their quiver to fight the sham confirmation hearings for Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Democratic leaderships did virtually nothing besides symbolically boycott the Senate vote. 
In fact, Senator Dianne Feinstein went so far as to offer Senator Lindsey Graham glowing praise for how he ran the Senate Judiciary hearings, saying, This has been one of the best set of hearings that I've ever participated in. Which, to remind you, the set of hearings that she's referencing was conducted while an election was already underway and um, going against the hypothetical rule that Mitch McConnell set in 2016 in which a Supreme Court justice should not be confirmed during an election year. To be frank, I think so many of the Democratic leadership represents this older generation that seems to be stuck in a fantasy land where bipartisanship is king, despite their colleagues on the other side of the aisle proving themselves to be very slimy hypocrites that will do just about anything to retain a grip on power. Not to say that they need to play as dirty as Republicans or use as many vulgar words as they do, but Democratic leadership needs to start fighting fire with fire, especially if we gain power in this election. While it seems Biden will win, the Democratic establishment pulled the strings as a party to prop him up as a candidate that proved to inspire lukewarm reception and is seeming to prevail just for the sake that he's an option that isn't Trump. So if and when Biden wins, liberals can't check out in ways that they have in the past. I know I'll be breathing a sigh of relief that the current commander-in-chief is not sending inflammatory disinformation via tweet in the middle of the night, but we can't completely check out and revert to the way of life that so many of us enjoyed before the Trump era bursted our bubble. The core problems facing our society will still persist even if Joe Biden is inaugurated as president and Kamala Harris is inaugurated as vice president. Systemic racism is not going away. Anti-LGBTQ plus forces are not going away. Economic uncertainty is not going away. Homelessness and food insecurity are not going away either. The best way of fighting these issues is paying attention and staying involved on a local level by supporting those who need it. Now, the Biden-Harris platform as written is bold and fairly progressive thanks to the hammering of activists pushing the party left over the past few years. But I do worry that the likely Republican Senate will hamstring any chance of passing bold legislation during their first term. If they win, we must hold the Biden-Harris administration to account in the fight to fulfill their promises and not back down from that fight. It's also worth remembering that while many of us liberal or left-leaning people were maybe sitting in this bubble of perceived progress um, and liberal government during the Obama administration, that in doing so, we were unaware of, or in some cases, maybe turning a blind eye to some grave injustices that were committed during that administration. As an example of their direct impact, the Obama administration normalized the use of drone strikes in the Middle Eastern countries of Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, leading to nearly 4,000 deaths, including several hundred civilian casualties. And more broadly speaking, while Obama's election as a black man is obviously historic, the Black Lives Matter movement did originate under his presidency. I'm not saying this to pin it to him directly, as that would be grossly unfair. But I am pointing it out as a reminder that grave racial injustice can be committed on a local, state, and national level, and are beyond the control of a single person, no matter how galvanizing they may be. Lastly, we need election reform, and we need it badly. The reason mail-in ballots in key states have not been counted in advance or along with in-person votes is because Republican officials rejected mail-in voting protections, 
that were necessitated because of COVID-19. To be honest, they likely anticipated a situation like the one we're in, where we had this slow trickle of Democratic-leaning Malin votes, and they wanted to lay the groundwork to capitalize on that by potentially disputing them after Election Day. All Americans over the age of 18, or maybe even one day age 16, should be automatically registered to vote. It's really such a simple concept, and there's really no legitimate reason why this shouldn't be the case, like it is in many other countries. And one final point, I know many liberal folks are quick to say that they want to destroy or secede from red-leading states that have voted um, for Trump and other conservative candidates. And I think that there are countless progressives whose hard work throughout the years is discounted, if not outright insulted by this. Operations in states like Georgia, Texas, and yes, despite the outcome, even Florida, have made those races competitive because of the years-long work by activists in those states. And there's non-activist folks in those states without power that also stand a lot to lose by the Republican strongholds on their government. We cannot forget those people in our fight for a better future. So I know we're in a moment where there's a lot still up in the air, and there's a lot that we're still figuring out. Um, and it might be a long time before we get those answers, but I just wanted to offer some quick thoughts on the moment we're in, because I do think that like, regardless of what happens, that these are important things for us to keep in mind. So like I said, these are just my opinions, and they're not above criticism, so please reach out to me on Instagram at dj.horn, or via email at derekjhorn at gmail.com if you want to offer a different perspective. And also let me know what you think about this new format, and if it's something you think I should continue with. It's probably going to be a stressful few days, so please be patient with yourself and those around you. Until next time, thank you for listening and be well.